don't want to sit around and say, oh, when I get tenure, I will take a stand against racism. Well, that sounds silly to me. I'll just take a stand against it now. That's Keisha Blaine, a professor of history at the University of Pittsburgh, senior blog editor at the African American Intellectual History Society, and editor of the Global Black History section of Public Books. You're listening to a podcast brought to you by the Howenstein Center at Grand Valley State University. I'm Joseph Hogan. This is Common Ground. Our guest today, Keisha Blaine, is a scholar of African American history. She manages in her scholarship to consider the modern African diaspora, black internationalism, radical politics, and global feminisms. So in a number of senses, Blaine takes an interdisciplinary approach to the study of African-American political and intellectual history. That's one of the reasons she's our guest this week. But there's another key reason. Keisha Blaine has, as much as any scholar, redefined what it means to be a publicly engaged academic in the 21st century. She's senior blog editor at the African-American Intellectual History Society and has contributed significantly to the fast rise in significance and influence of that organization among historians, as well as among folks just interested in the history of African-American thought. She's also one of the co-founders of the hashtag Charleston Syllabus, a movement on Twitter that offered a detailed reading list crowdsourced by and among historians to offer a history of racial violence in the U.S. That syllabus drew a ton of attention at the New York Times and elsewhere. We talk about the Charleston Syllabus, as well as the Trump 2.0 Syllabus, which Blaine also co-authored. So in this episode, we talk about Keisha Blaine's work as a scholar and public intellectual. We also end up discussing what it's like for her as a professor on a college campus to lead class discussions about race as well as gender. We take up the common refrain heard in magazines and in the mainstream media that students these days are liberal snowflakes who can't bear to consider ideas opposed to their own. Blaine offers her own take on this issue as well as on a number of of others. It was a great pleasure talking with her about some of these topics. So all that and more is coming up in this episode of Common Ground. So Keisha Blaine, thanks so much for coming on the podcast and talking with me. Thanks for having me. So Keisha, you're an historian at the University of Pittsburgh and your work, uh, just to just to bring listeners um, up to speed, your work often links African-American history the modern African diaspora, and women's and gender studies. I'd like to explore all that with you. But first, we should know, uh, for listeners, one of the things that I think makes the kind of work you do really distinct and interesting, uh, which is that you bridge the gap between scholarship and public debate. So, so one way I think you've bridged that gap is in your work at the African American Intellectual History Society, where you serve as senior blog editor and secretary. Could you describe for listeners the work you do there? So, so could you talk a bit about the mission of that organization and how it manages to bring recent scholarship on African-American intellectual history into the public conversation? Sure. And so the African-American Intellectual History Society uh, is a scholarly organization that was founded only a few years ago. We started in 2014. And the goal of the organization is essentially to foster dialogue about researching, writing, and teaching black thought and culture. And essentially, the blog, Black Perspectives, is a primary vehicle through which we disseminate these ideas. In terms of the work that I do, it's funny that you ask. I do lots of different things. And so, of course, I'm the senior blog editor, which means I'm constantly reading, constantly uh, engaging scholars who are generally interested in getting their work out to a general public, out to um, readers beyond just academics and people who might have PhDs or people who are studying African-American history. So we have a very robust readership, and I think, uh, although we certainly do have lots of academics reading the blog, uh, many of our readers are not academics. They are people who just have a general interest in black history and culture, want to learn more about the topic and perhaps came across the blog randomly if they're searching for information mm. or perhaps came across the blog on Twitter. And so for me, I work with a team of um, a really amazing editing team, uh, mostly graduate students, but also some undergrad uh, students who have an interest in academic blogging and we work one-on-one with authors. 
who will generally submit a piece, will review the piece, uh, will give them feedback, they'll have a chance to revise, uh, and we'll help them sort of take uh, maybe generally something like 1,000 words or so uh, and, and be able to present it to a general audience to remove the academic jargon mm-hmm. and all of that. Yeah. And I think it has been quite effective. Um, and so that's my primary role uh, at AIHS, uh, but of course I'm also the organization secretary, so I do a whole bunch of other things beyond to just working out the blog. Well, so actually I'd like to ask some questions about a, f- a few of the things you just said. I mean, again, I, th- I think you you make the point well. You know, one thing that's really interesting, so sort of from an outsider's view or someone who, um, um, you know, who learned about uh, the African-American Intellectual History Society on Twitter as a result of many of the things that you do and your, and your uh, colleagues do to sort of promote the organization. Um, and that, I, I have to imagine that's contributed to its pretty quick rise in popularity and influence. But I'm wondering, um, do you think the, the rise of the, um, as I say, the popularity of the society also has to do simply with the content um, and, and what, what do you, I guess my question is, what do you think um, is, is most important to the, the quick rise of the AAIHS, um, not just in um, scholarly circles, but as you say, just sort of out in the wide world? So I, I would certainly say the quality of the work that we produce, uh, and this is not solely coming from me as the blog editor, but certainly <laughs> uh, readers are always sending feedback and saying we really love the work you produce and and of course there's a reason for that and I mentioned the process of peer reviewing because I think people often assume falsely uh, that if you're editing a blog, you're writing a blog post, you're sort of, you came up with a quick idea, you drafted it in 15 minutes Mm. and you hit publish and so of course if you have a personal blog and maybe that's the way you would approach things but in terms of a group blog like this one, uh, we do, we, we peer review everything, we copy edit everything, uh, we discuss everything that comes into us. And so I think uh, what you find in the end when a piece actually is published, it has gone through several uh, different people who are, of course, studying this topic. Uh, we're able to identify weaknesses in the piece and, and also amplify the strengths of the piece. I think all of that shows when the final product appears on the site. People will find uh, a post that's well thought out. Mm. Um, it may be short, but you'll find full citations. You'll find links to books that will help you expand even further upon what you've read. Uh, and as a result, people are able to use our pieces in classrooms. I'm finding lots of our pieces on syllabi, uh, for example. Um, and that's simply, again, because we try to be very careful with the quality. And that's not an easy thing because, of course, we're in a moment where people want things quickly, and sometimes authors will send in a piece and get frustrated that it's, you know, it has been two or three weeks and the piece is not out yet. But at least for me and certainly for the people I work with, we're less concerned about speed and more concerned about the depth and the quality of the piece. And, and in the end, I think our readers are pleased with that. So that's one um, aspect. And, of course, social media helps. We're all, uh, you know, essentially everyone in the organization, all of us are, uh, fairly young um, scholars, early career scholars, uh, who uh, most of us, if not all, have a Twitter account, we're on Facebook, we're on Instagram, and we're constantly, as you said, promoting the pieces, we're circulating the work widely, and so many people, I would say most of our readers, come to us through Twitter, which isn't surprising since we're always tweeting. So uh, one thing that you said that um, that struck me uh, as particularly true is that people are using blog posts in classes to talk about perhaps putting them on syllabi perhaps but also um perhaps m- maybe students are bringing them into classes and talking about them I, I i cite that example because that was true for me uh, uh in the in the fall semester I'm, uh, i was in a course at nyu on 19th century um, african-american literary history and i brought in um i can't i i, I should i should have remembered this a, a blog post i can't remember who wrote it but it was about um uh, the just the difficulties of going into archives and filling gaps um um uh, one thing i'd like to talk to you about in a little bit is the difficulty and the difficulty with writing about the intellectual history of african americans in, in large part because it's it's something it's not a history that's well documented um right. uh and so the the blog post about was about that and i liked 
I liked the opportunity to bring it to class because it pointed to the great deal of energy behind African American intellectual history in this moment, in large part because it does feel, it seems like it feels like it's like it's like it's a a great movement forward, and there's a lot of momentum and a lot of excitement, and that's in in large part because of the youth of of a lot of the scholars doing it um, and the the discoveries they're making. Um, so. I, I, what I was thinking is that I should have written you or someone uh, just given feedback and said, you know, this is how I used this blog post. When you get feedback um, from mm -hmm. readers, either in the academy or outside, what do you most often um, find that they're interested in? Uh, what are they saying? So I'm struck by how many people will send a message and say something like, you know, I read a post on this particular activist. I can't believe I've never heard of this person mm -hmm. in my life. Um, and that's true, I think, even for, for individuals who many of us assume people know. So just for example, I remember uh, circulating a piece on Fannie Lou Hamer, I think it was sometime last year, and having so many people say, I'm in my 60s and I have never heard of this woman. I, you know, I've lived in Mississippi how is it that I'm learning about this woman um, from this particular venue? And, and of course, I encourage people, well, for starters, there's nothing to feel bad about. Um, I'm glad that you found the piece, and now you know. Uh, but, but it just underscores, I think, how we take for granted the, the kind of information that we are exposed to. Well, just, um, just whether, quickly, yes. who, who is that? Mm -hmm. Who is that woman? So Fanny Hamer uh, is just an amazing uh, uh, civil rights activist, and and so uh, from Mississippi, one of the things that I think I find particularly intriguing about her life story is that she's, she's, not, she's someone who did not have sort of a formal education. Uh, she was a sharecropper. Um, in fact, by the time she found out about voting rights, she was well into her 50s. And she uh, started out uh, as an activist uh, pretty late uh, in, her, in her life, if you think about it. Yet she was so... Uh, influential. And so one of the things that she did, she gave this powerful uh, testimony that was televised uh, in the 1960s that really pointed out um, really the, the challenges that black people were facing living in, in Jim Crow South, uh, a, a, a pretty much a direct challenge to white supremacy. And she uh, becomes someone who pushes for uh, the Democratic Party uh, at the time to be more inclusive, to allow black people a voice uh, and a vote, and that the party was segregated at the time. And, and she uh, was instrumental in pushing for, for voters' rights um, in the 1960s, particularly in the state of Mississippi and beyond. And so many people, of course, might have heard about Martin Luther King, Jr., mm -hmm. uh, certainly. Uh, certainly might have heard about Malcolm X. Uh, you know, these are the sort of iconic figures that people will talk about when we discuss the 1960s. And, and someone like Fannie Lou Hamer, though she is crucial to the history, often gets uh, overlooked or sidelined. And like I said, this is true for people, uh, particularly outside of the academy. And of course, anyone who takes African-American history would have encountered uh, Fannie Lou Hamer, but that's not necessarily the case mm. for a general reader. And so people uh, who read the blog um, admitted that they were stunned that this was new information. And we get that a lot, people saying, wow, this this just blew my mind. I didn't even know about this concept. I didn't know about this particular figure. Um, and I want to know more. So people will often send an email and say, I read the, the piece. Can you recommend some more books and articles? Uh, because I'd love to dig a bit deeper. And we're happy to answer those questions. And so that's that has been fascinating for me. Well, so I'm just thinking about that. I mean, one of the other aspects of, of reading the blog and, and following the work that you do is that it seems even without you or any other writer having to reference it, there, there seems to be um, a kind of political importance to the work, not just by the fact that you're telling stories that aren't often told about um, history, about American history, um, but uh, it's also just implicitly uh, these these blog posts and these conversations that uh, your organization is helping to start. They're they're contributions to a, conver a national conversation about race that has direct political relevance, not just to election 2016, but to, you know all of the um, cultural debates and um, um, difficulties that we're experiencing today in America. Um, I'm I'm hoping we can talk about that, not just in relation to 
um, uh, the African American Intellectual History Society, but also the work that mm-hmm. you do at Public Books. Um, right. So, so you, you're, you, you edit the global black history section of Public Books, right? Yes. I just started doing that uh, just several months ago, earlier this year. I started um, working with Public Books, and, and it really was an opportunity, I think, uh, to forge a sort of um, alliance, so to speak, uh, mm-hmm. between Public Books and AIHS because... Uh, and they have always been very supportive of our organization, and we've been supportive uh, of their publication, and we thought it would be really good to collaborate. You know, they would um, often reprint several of our pieces, and we would reprint some of theirs. And so um, my position really makes um, makes it possible for us to collaborate even more. Mm-hmm. And so sometimes you'll notice uh, sort of cross-publications. We'll, we'll publish an interview, and it'll appear in public books later, or we'll feature one author on our site and feature them again on public books. So you'll see those kinds of things taking place intentionally. So, so not long ago, I talked with Kate Zaloom, uh, co-editor of public books. Um, mm-hmm. and, and we talked about your section in particular and the significance of your and NDB Connolly's Trump syllabus, mm-hmm. um, to the right. de- development of what seemed like a really vital forum, uh, for scholars and, and students to talk to each other and to talk to the public about the immediate relevance of their work to the present political and social moment. So could you could you talk about that? You know, how, how do you edit or curate the global black history section? Um, and do you try to keep in mind the relevance of articles to the national and global conversation about politics and race? Absolutely. Well, you know, one of the things that, you know, you asked earlier about um, what drives AIHS, and I think this is true when I think about the section at Public Books um, on global black history, uh, in both cases, I'm always thinking about the relevancy, uh, of course, for the moment, the political importance. Mm. And so you see that in the kinds of initiatives. And so this is true for Trump syllabus 2.0, as well as the Charleston syllabus, which I can talk more about later. But in terms of the Trump syllabus, which I collaborated with, uh, with uh, Nathan Connolly, uh, this was an interesting development because it really came stemmed out of, um, well, my frustration and really a collective frustration um, because we noticed the publication of a Trump syllabus, a mock uh, syllabus that was published on the Chronicle right. of Higher Ed, right. in which, you know, we and we pointed that out. We know we wrote a public letter, had uh, people sign, in which, uh, oddly enough, here you had this syllabus that attempted to explain the rise of Trump without readings about um, immigration or uh, xenophobia or racism mm. or, I mean, just a host of important topics that, of course, were at the forefront of um his campaign and certainly the, the public debate surrounding uh, his his rise, um, and and we that was one issue, and also the fact that we noticed the the scholarship um, of people of color were largely absent, uh, very few pieces even recommended uh, that were written by women, um, and we wanted to challenge that, but and this is generally my attitude towards all of this. I hate to be the person who sort of stands on the sideline. Uh, criticize something and and then stop, you know, just sort of criticize and leave it at that. Mm. I'm always thinking, well, if I'm going to point out a problem, how can I come up with a solution? And and that's the reason why I'm always doing these kinds of initiatives. I'm always busy because when I notice that something needs to be done, rather than looking around to see, well, who could do it, I just said, well, you know what, make the time and just do it already. And so with the Trump syllabus, that's what happened, too. We said, well, we clearly need a better syllabus. And then it was it was clear, okay, well, we need to just do this. Uh, we can't hope and wait for someone else to do it. We saw the problem. Let's fix it. And so the Trump syllabus um, is fascinating in and of itself because at the time we published the syllabus, uh, this was several months before the election. So Trump had not yet been um, elected as president. And, of course, when he was elected uh, several months later, people found the syllabus yet again and went back to the syllabus and the syllabus sort of had this second life, so to speak, mm. because people found that, well, now it's especially important that we need to, to understand how we've gotten to this place historically. Uh, and, and so when I think about the, the section on global black history, I'm trying to think of what kinds of books to feature uh, that will speak to current issues, that will speak to the discussions we're having um, as a nation that would really, I think, help to answer questions people might be having. And as a historian, I want them to uh, to see that all of the, the things that we're discussing in this moment are 
really not unique. That you know, these are debates that have been longstanding, and scholars are engaging these topics in their work. And and so I always try to feature authors and books that will speak to current issues when I curate uh, the section for public books and when I do my uh, other work for AIHS. Well, that's so interesting. So I'm hoping we can talk more about the syllabi you've developed generally, and you mentioned Charleston syllabus, and we can we can touch on that. I mean, what what I really like about those, and I, you were sort of gesturing toward this um, point just now, that they seem to um, point to another way scholars can do public work, and as you say, not just criticize, but take a, a kind of action. That, In other words, they can be public intellectuals in the 21st century. So it seems like often when scholars try to work in that way as public intellectuals, they simply write an op-ed or give a, give a TED talk and TED talks are great. But, um, mm-hmm. but, but you and your colleagues, by developing these syllabi um, and disseminating them, you seem to have brought the bear to bear, excuse me, the weight of your own research and your own knowledge of the scholarly conversation. Um, you've brought that all to bear on the public conversation. So if the question everyone is asking is something like, how do we understand the rise of Donald Trump? You and your colleagues don't just write a 250-word piece uh, for the Washington Post. Um, uh, you, you actually tell people, if you want to really understand this issue, you should read and consider all these sources. So yes, that's what um, uh, you, you've been saying. So how, how have they worked, particularly Trump, the Trump syllabus and Trump 2.0? What responses have you gotten to that? And do you think that that syllabus has worked the way you wanted it to? Yeah, well, you know, it's funny that you brought up the sort of op-eds and TED Talks. I, I often chuckle about this because I certainly do think it's much easier to write an op-ed right. uh, than put right. together a public syllabus. And, uh, and certainly there's a reason why a uh, few people, I think, will commit to doing them. They, you know, they take a lot of time. I remember the Trump syllabus um, 2.0. I can, every time I think about it, I can think about days of my life. Um, just lost to that (laughs) syllabus, you know, where people would reach out and say, you know, where are you? I couldn't reach you all day. I've been calling him, emailing him. Oh, well, yes, sorry, I've been caught up in the syllabus. Uh, It takes a lot of time. It takes a lot um, of effort. And I think what has worked well in in the case of the Trump syllabus 2.0, as well as the Charleston syllabus, has certainly been the collaborative project. So in both cases, I worked with other scholars that has helped tremendously, um, just to be able to have other people chime in, say what they think about the pieces. But also, I think in both cases, they were also crowdsourced. So for the, the mm. for Charleston syllabus, we relied on Twitter to um, have people give suggestions for books, articles, and, and so on that they would suggest including in, in the list. And we didn't include everything that people suggested because we needed to, to make final decisions uh, in terms of what should be on the list and perhaps what should not be on the list for whatever reason. And um, for Trump syllabus 2.0, we relied on a variety of mediums, including Facebook, and sending out emails to people to say, well, we're working on this section. You know, we're both kind of rusty on the latest scholarship in this section. What do you recommend? And when people give recommendations, we have to also take a closer look. We have to, to think, you know, should we include this particular book over another? What would be, you know, the strengths and weaknesses of this particular text? Uh, so there's a lot that goes into it. In terms of the response, I think it has been – very positive. One of the things that has happened in both the Charleston syllabus uh, and the Trump syllabus 2.0, which has been fascinating, is people have taken these lists and have come up with just so many different creative ways in which to use them. So just to give an example, I'm now working with a group um, of community activists in uh, Indiana who came across the, the Charleston syllabus and found it so useful. They had been trying to have these kinds of public conversations uh, in, the com- in various communities about race, racism, and they found that the, that the Charleston syllabus would be a very good um, tool to use. And so what they're doing is over the next several months, if they were able to obtain a grant, they're going to be purchasing copies um, of the book. They're going to be sharing it in various communities and then organizing sessions where people can come and discuss the readings in different sections. So that has been one fascinating aspect, the creation of reading groups. 
I've seen lots of reading groups um, for the Trump syllabus as well. People will email me and say, oh, I'm at the University of Texas at Austin, and, you know, I just want you to know we're using the syllabus. We have a reading group going with 40 people. We meet once a week, and we're going through each Hmm. um, reading. So these are the kinds of ways I've seen pastors, um, which, you know, was fascinating to me and exciting to see seen pastors, um, you know, distribute copies of the book to their parishioners and say, okay, you know, yes, we'll be discussing the Bible, but we're also going to be discussing this text. It's important for us to know what's going on in our communities. We need to grapple with race and racism. This text is a way for us to do that. And so we've seen it used in all of these different venues, including in prisons. I've had people reach out to me and say, just so you know, I'm using um, the syllabus or the book uh, in, in a particular class that I'm teaching at you know, a local men's prison, and we're finding it really helpful because, you know, it's sparking amazing conversations about history. And and so it's, I think, fascinating to see how what starts off as a reading list um, that you really just hope maybe a hundred people, a few hundred people will read and circulate, just take on a life of their own. And, of course, the Charleston Syllabus, we started off as a reading list on a website, and that became a book, the Trump Syllabus. Uh, there are efforts um, being, being made as we speak to turn it into a book as well. And so we'll see over the next couple of years, I think, even more interesting ways that people will, will build upon these reading lists. And so I have been pleased. Of course, there are criticisms. I won't pretend that it has all been positive feedback. Some people are upset because you didn't include their book or that you or included <laughs> yeah. someone else's book that yeah. they thought was not as good as theirs or whatever. You know, you'll have those kinds of things with people sending hate mail because they just didn't appreciate the fact that you're grappling with these kinds of sensitive topics. Um, you know, I've certainly, you know, been targeted by certain groups, did not appreciate the kind of work that I do. Uh, but at the end of the day, I think it's overall has been a rewarding experience because we're seeing people really use these lists in um, a variety of ways outside of the traditional classroom setting, which is exciting. So uh, can we talk just a little bit about the criticism, actually? I mean, the, mm-hmm. uh, one thing that's that I've been hoping to touch on um, is that your scholarship seems to not, well not not obviously not all of your scholarship but the work that you do for AAIHS and uh, the Global Black History section of Public Books it's scholarly but it's scholarship that doubles as a as you say as a kind of activism or rather it collapses the the uh, wall the distinction between those two things um, often you hear scholars or even folks outside the academy attempt to split up those two categories and say scholarship should be objective and therefore mm-hmm. apolitical in some sense. Right. I'm wondering, is that a criticism you get? Do you think there's any validity to it? How do you respond? So I certainly do receive uh, that criticism. Uh, of course, I've heard it time and time again. In fact, I used to believe it for a moment of my life. Mm. Um, I used to actually belief uh, in the notion of objectivity when it came to my work or the idea that I should be uh, apolitical, especially as an early career scholar. I was concerned about what it would mean for me to do these kinds of things and how it could possibly impact my career. Would I have job opportunities if I, you know, happened to speak publicly about a particular issue? Uh, At the same time, I've come to the place where I've had to just be honest with myself and say, as much as I appreciate um, the opportunity to to do a thing that I do and to teach and to do research, I would really, I'm kidding myself to think that uh, my work can somehow be apolitical. I don't quite understand um, how one can be apolitical, especially at this particular moment, and especially when you're writing about, you know, topics like racism. It frustrated me that that people would be comfortable with talking about, you know, political movements or um, racism in, in the 20th century, but not want to talk about it in this current moment. That didn't make sense to me. And my students realized uh, that clearly this was a predicament. I taught a course on race and politics in 20th century U.S. history. I was teaching at the University of Iowa. I was teaching it several months before uh, the election, during the primaries. And students would constantly bring up what was happening, you know, at the moment. Mm. And they were doing so because it was difficult for them to just talk about race and politics in the 1920s and not see the connections 
the clear connections to what was happening at the moment, to the kinds of discussions that were taking place, to the debates that were they were seeing uh, on television at, at, in the evenings. They wanted to talk about these ideas, uh, and I let them. And and I just I found that the experience was certainly rewarding for them and rewarding for me. And I just think it's useful to be honest and open with, with your students, and so I am honest and open. I tell them uh, where I stand on certain issues and why and how I've come to that place. I'm not asking them to agree with me, but I think it's important for them to know where I'm coming from when we have those conversations. Um, we can try to be neutral, objective, apolitical as much as we want to, but I do think there are moments uh, where we are called upon to take a stand and um, certainly as historians we are probably uh, I think in the best position to do that because we're able to talk about what's happening in the moment with a really good insight of how we've gotten to this place and and perhaps some ideas about where we're going and how we might get there and so I don't shy away from those conversations anymore and I've just accepted the fact that my, you know, this is vital to me. This is really, uh, this is professional, but it's personal too. That I, um, there's a lot at stake, not just for me as an individual, but uh, for for people um, who I work with, for 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 people of color, um, for women. I mean, I there's just no way that I can sort of separate uh, who I am as an individual and the work that I do as a historian. And so I've given up the notion of, of keeping the two separate. Mm. And I've honestly um, found a lot of uh, joy uh, in, in doing that uh, because it's, at the end of the day, the most authentic that I can be. And, and I think people appreciate that. Some won't like it and some certainly do not. And, and I think in certain circles there are people who will dismiss me or my work simply because of the kind of public um, activities that I've been involved in, but what can I do about that other than to, to keep doing the work? Um, and, and I think you'll notice with my profile, you know, a lot, a lot of the criticism, I think, has been very early in my career. People would say things like, you know, you're, you're writing op-eds and you're blogging. I hope you're writing a book, as if, you know, this notion that, well, clearly the book is what matters, mm -hmm. and so don't get sidetracked. Uh, and, and I get it, you know, we have requirements for tenure. I'm mindful of that. Uh, and I've always been, you know, I've always been cognizant that as, as I do all of the things that I'm doing, I need to be, you know, checking off several boxes at once. And so uh, I wrote op-eds, I wrote blog posts, I edited a blog, I wrote articles, I, you know, edited a journal special issue, I worked on anthologies, and I, you know, have a book coming out. I mean, I think I, I was able to do all these things, and this is true for really all of the scholars at AIHS. You'll see that we we understand what, you know, what the stakes are, and so we're mindful that we need to produce um, the kinds of things that will help us advance our career in terms of tenure, but at the same time, we don't shy away from being at the center of those crucial conversations that ultimately make a difference in our personal lives. And we, we can't talk about black intellectual history and not engage um, all of these issues that are currently affecting us as a society. So I, I really don't want to leave this, this topic. I have a couple questions about it. Um, at first, it just relates to what you, what you just said. So it, in your sense of, um, or in your understanding of the current uh, situation in, in scholarship and, and scholarly attitudes toward the kind of the different kinds of work especially young scholars can do and what counts for tenure and what count, what doesn't count um do you, do you think that there might be a shift coming where the sort of work you do often like the creation of syllabi that are being used in classes across the country do you think that we're approaching a point where that might be taken more seriously in terms of helping scholars get tenure yes i think so you know i was reflecting recently on uh, there was a set of guidelines that the american historical association had released sometime last year and i was very happy to see they were talking about guidelines for the profession, and they were very explicit about um, the commitment to the kinds of work you know that we're discussing here in terms of public engagement, um, the importance of digital humanities, 
And that was, for me, a signal, at least for historians, certainly, that um, more and more people are seeing the importance of academic blogging and the importance of the public syllabi and uh, and understanding that, you know, they take a lot of work. Um, They require a lot of work. And uh, we should certainly be rewarded, so to speak, if we're thinking about tenure requirements mm-hmm. and promotion. We should be rewarded for that kind of work. And sometimes, I mean, even more so, you know, it's it's a very strange kind of feeling. I, I was telling someone recently how odd is it uh, that I would, you know, I could spend three years writing a journal article, and the article will come out, and several months later I would take a look at the stats, and it would say something like 540 people have downloaded the article, and that's great. That's actually considered, you know, very good uh, in the world of academia. At the same time, I think about what it means to publish an op-ed uh, or to write a blog post where within the first six hours, you know, 10,000 people would have read it. And, you know, think about that uh, versus this article that you take so many years to write, you know, you put so much effort into it, it's behind a paywall, so you've already limited access in that way. And, of course, experts in your field will read it. Some students will read it. Uh, but few people who you actually want to read it will actually have an opportunity to read it. And so it's a strange sort of dynamic where we do such important work and where, you know, we, we're discovering all these new things. We have all these wonderful ideas that could essentially change the world. And so few people will ever know about it simply because of the venues uh, in which we choose to publish those pieces. In it. And at the end of the day, when I produce a CV for a tenure committee, what they are impressed with is that journal article. What they don't see and what they might overlook is that op-ed that actually could have circulated you know, so widely across the nation and could have sparked right, a host of different kinds of responses that would initiate the, the kinds of changes that we want to see. That does not certainly get as much traction because the assumption is, well, it's only 2,000 words. It can't be that serious or important, whereas this long article in this, you know, prestigious journal matters a whole lot. And I think we've we've got to, to push away from that model. I'm not suggesting that we stop writing journal articles, but what I am saying is we should begin to have the kinds of conversations where we are not easily dismissing op-eds and blog posts and, and the kinds of, you know, things that, that other scholars that I'm doing, other scholars are doing publicly that they should also be, you know, part of the discussion, and perhaps there needs to be a requirement, and I know that's happening in, in more and more schools, but, you know, there certainly should be a requirement across the board for public engagement, and not just saying public engagement as a fancy word that, you know, we, we, we love to hear it, but the question is how are we actually doing it, and how can we do it as scholars? What motivation do we have if we're not getting the credit for it and if we're not uh, and if in return we're being criticized for it as opposed to um, praised for putting ourselves out there, which we are, every time we run an op-ed or we do something for the public, we really do take a chance uh, politically, professionally, personally. Uh, we put ourselves out there, um, and, and I think it's, 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 we're certainly moving into a moment where people are going to appreciate that kind of work more and more. I hope we get there faster, but uh, I, I do see progress and that's exciting well so another thing i'd like to ask you about just related to uh some of your recent comments um, i i think you so helpfully I, i've been asking about um about your public work and the things that you post online um, and disseminate but you re- very helpfully brought up just the, the the importance of being in a classroom and teaching these mm-hmm. topics and talking about um, um african-american history to students i yeah I, I'm wondering about this. So, so we often hear, you know, kind of in the mainstream press. In fact, this is, seems to be a cottage industry now in magazines um, to, to, uh, for, for writers to um, bemoan the state of uh, campuses um, in America and uh, the ways in which they're politically fraught. Um, the problem with all of these um, these liberal snowflake students, I think that's the phrase, um, who can't right. who can't bear to face ideas opposed to their own. Um, so. Often, when this accusation is made against students, it has to do with debates about identity, particularly about um, race and gender. What has your experience of campuses been like? Um, and are these conversations that you that you seem to be sort of jumping into and saying are totally necessary to have, are these conversations 
fraught on campuses? Uh, have they been productive um, uh, otherwise? Uh, and have they mm-hmm. been accurately or inaccurately represented in the media? Well, I certainly, you know, my sense is that oftentimes um, the people who make these kinds of blanket statements about students have not been in a classroom for some time, if mm. at all, uh, simply because I think anyone who teaches um, understands that students, well, for, for one thing, a classroom is diverse. So you always have a range of students. You have students who are open uh, to new ideas, some students who are less interested. You know, they took the class for whatever reason. They need to so, fulfill some requirements, so they're not all that enthused about uh, engaging new ideas. But but I've never been in a situation where I've taught a class where I didn't have some students, if not the majority of students, who were excited um, about the opportunity to engage new ideas. You know, I won't pretend that um, when you teach about race and racism, these kinds of topics are, are pretty sensitive. You know, people get uncomfortable. You know, within a couple of seconds, as soon as you bring up race, no one wants to talk. People are afraid that they'll say something offensive, that they'll say the wrong word. And I've tried to create a classroom um, environment where people feel com- comfortable to talk. And so just as an example, I remember having a conversation about um, immigration. And, and so I asked, I posed a question to the class, and I remember immediately students started talking about um, Mexicans, and I said, stop. I said, I never said Mexicans. I said, immigration, how do we get to Mexicans? Right? And then people sort of, oh, wow, how do we get there? And I said, well, let's talk about why you've uh, you know, immediately assumed that. You know, and, of course, it makes people feel uncomfortable, but it's a moment where they begin to reflect and realize, oh, wait a minute, I've had certain ideas about immigration, certainly perhaps shaped by the media and, and others, and it's time for me to step back and to assess why I believe what I believe. Um, if what I, you know, what I, what I do believe is this actually accurate in terms of the history, in terms of the reality. Uh, and so I challenge students a lot. And, and sometimes if it's too hard to get them to talk openly, uh, sometimes I'll say, well, you know, let's write about this for the next 10 minutes. Just, just write about it and then share your thoughts with me, um, you know, hand it to me, I'll read it, and we'll keep the dialogue going. But but the idea that students don't want to engage and they're resistant to learning new things or new ideas uh, or different um, or engaging different opinions, I think that's, inc- that's incorrect. I think students, um, you know, they may be resistant. They may not like uh, when you challenge their ideas, especially ideas that they've uh, perhaps grown to, um, maybe they've grown up in a household where certain ideas um, were promoted and, and now they're coming into a classroom setting where you're telling them something that's different, that makes them uncomfortable. They they don't want to go against what mom and dad has said or mm. what have you. But I think I have been most impressed with uh, students who have come to me and say, you know, after this class, I now have a different view about this particular topic. I know that this perspective is certainly not the one um, that I've always had, but the readings you've assigned um, helped me see that there are actually two different sides to this story, and I've only been exposed to one side, and now now that I know the other side, I can formulate my, right, my own opinion that may or may not be in line with my mom or, or my dad or who have you. And so I certainly reject the notion that students are, as some people say, quote, unquote, liberal snowflakes who aren't able to engage. I mean, I think the key here, and let me be clear about this, um, you know, I'm not of the mindset that that the classroom space should be a space where anything goes. And, and here is where, you know, there are moments in my classroom, I mean, there was one particular moment where I had a student who was passionately defending Japanese internment, making comments that, were clearly um, offensive that were causing other students to feel uncomfortable and, and problematic, especially since they were not being backed up and supported by any kind um, of evidence. And I've emphasized students, if you're going to say something, then you have to provide evidence. And it was clear this person hadn't done the reading. They just wanted to say what they, what they felt. And um, that was a moment where I had to, to, stop, to stop them and say, okay, we're, we're, we're not going to um, engage this because, number one, um, this is 
incorrect. Uh, historically, what you're saying is incorrect. And as Chapter 3 explained in the book, this is why um, Japanese internment was problematic and wrong, and this is why we have since apologized right, for, for this, and this is why we're not going to talk about doing it again. <laughs> you know, and, and, it, and I didn't want it to be this free-for-all, like, well, well, he thinks it, so let him just go with it, and, and we'll be happy and leave. I think it's important to, to shut down um, the kinds of discourse that I think really takes us to a place um, where we're endorsing, whether it's racism or xenophobia, uh, or what have you. And so here is where I go back to this notion of objectivity and neutrality as being um, really unfruitful in, in, a, in a classroom setting where you do have to stand up in times and say, no, actually, that's, that is wrong, and here's why it's wrong, right? Wherever you stand on the side, wherever you stand politically, this is a problem, and we don't want to be in a space where we're saying, oh, actually, it's okay because I believe it. So... Uh, We've been talking a bit about um, the discomfort that students often feel in classrooms. I've certainly felt it when talking about everybody does. I mean, when talking about race mm-hmm. um, and 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 identity generally. Um, but one thing I'm wondering too is in in uh, exploring these topics, um, and as you point out acknowledging that sometimes you know there could be a quick beat in a conversation and it can go in a d- direction that you did not intend and that mm-hmm. might be troubling or might be very difficult to navigate like the experience you were just um describing do you ever feel um the urge to censor yourself or to um maybe not go to a certain, and, and we can explore this as, as deeply or as mm-hmm. shallowly as you'd like, but I'm just really wondering, you know, I, I often hear, and this isn't usually in confidence, uh, uh, professors or teachers will just sort of reference to me the fact that sometimes they don't want to go to a place in a conversation because they don't know what will happen. They don't know how students will react. Mm-hmm. They're worried about, they're worried about a student taking to Twitter or they're worried about a student complaining to the chair or to someone in the administration. And if the professor doesn't have that much um, political or social capital at the moment, it could really be damaging to their ability to like do good work in their department. Uh, and I'm just wondering if you feel that and how you manage that or think about that. You know, I mean, I think it's normal um, really to to feel, to be worried. And, you know, I, I would be lying if, if I said that I – I didn't worry about many of the things um, that I did uh, daily. You know, that's just, that's just I think, human. But at the same time, I, I do think it's important. Um, I mean, I mentioned earlier about creating a, a space uh, that's comfortable, but at the same time, I, I, I really do think that we have to set boundaries. And, I mean, so, so in the case of the example I just brought up, uh, what I did was uh, as soon as I – you know, made it clear, okay, let's stop for a moment. You know, we're not going to go down this road. I thought it would be useful to really allow other students to jump into the conversation. And so one of the things I said immediately um, was something like, well, can someone, you know, drawing from the readings that I've assigned this week, talk about um, why Japanese internment um, you know, was actually not a good idea, uh, and and other students were able to to chime in, and so it became an opportunity mm-hmm. where I think it wasn't just oh the professor, um, you know, made it clear that that she did not accept um, this particular point of view, but it was one let's get back to the readings because that's the point here, that we do the readings and we discuss and we don't just come in and talk about how we feel without. Uh, some sort of evidence to support right certain perspectives, but two, it allowed other students right to to utilize, um, you know, to to use opportunity to share their own views, um, and to challenge right a particular perspective, and to use the tools that they had available, uh, right to make a case um, against it. And so, could it have gone a different way? Sure. Um, Every time you teach, you know, you're not quite sure what will work. Some things will work in a particular classroom that you'll try again that will simply uh, not, not work so well. I think teaching 
uh, is a two-way street. And so even as a professor, you're, you're teaching and you devise, um, you know, you come up with a lesson plan. But you're also learning, too. Um, you're learning from your students and you're learning. You're becoming a better professor with time. You, you, you learn how to uh, navigate these kinds of conversations. Um, you learn how to how to respond to a student, how to stop a student uh, in a way that's respectful, um, that, that's not demeaning. I mean, so these are the kinds of things that you are able to do with time. Uh, does it mean that you won't have pushback and that students might not? I mean, in case, this case, the student was upset. Yes, he did complain. But mm-hmm. at the end of the day, I, um, I certainly um, think I handled it well, and the students and other students in the, in the course appreciated it, appreciated the fact um, that I didn't allow it to just sort of roam free, you know, students um, of Asian descent who sat in that class who looked at me in horror when they heard, you know, what their classmate was saying. They were looking to me as the instructor to do something, to say something, um, and to make it clear that this was not going to be a space where um, we would allow these kinds of uh, views to go unchecked. And and I think that uh, it was important for me to, to do that. So, I just I think the point here is whatever you do uh, as an academic, especially I mean th- there will be risks. Uh, you know I'm always taking a risk. Uh, when I write an op-ed, I'm taking a risk. Uh, when I collaborate on some project uh, for the public, it may seem like a good idea to me, but I'm taking a risk. Uh, when I write something, um, I'm taking a risk. When I tweet something, I'm taking a risk which is why I'm always mindful, right, about what I say publicly and, um, and how I say it. Uh, and I try as much as possible to uh, make sure that I'm doing the kinds of things and saying the kinds of things that I feel confident I can stand by, uh, whether it's from a deep personal conviction or what have you. But I certainly don't want to be in a position where I'm so consumed with worry about how this could go wrong, how this could go wrong, um, that that I don't, you know, make a, a stand at the moment where I know I need mm-hmm. to. And uh, and it's hard. It's I won't, like I said, it it's a constant battle, and I respect the people who decide they're just not going to do it um, until they get tenure, but I certainly won't, don't want to sit around and say, oh, when I get tenure, I will take a stand against racism. Well, that sounds silly to me I, you know I'll just take a stand against it now well so I, I know I've taken up a good deal of your time so I won't ask too many more questions about this this example but um, just one thing I'm, I'm thinking as well uh, about what you said you know one 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 debate that seems to be happening right now and has been happening surely for quite a long time about um, about universities and college campuses um, is whether they should be um, basically uh, bastions of free speech. Um, mm-hmm. and, and you hear a lot of, you hear a lot of phrases like, uh, um, like, um, well, actually I won't, I won't give any examples. You know, all of them, but anyways, um, <laughs> the, whether, whether, whether the central virtue of a university should be that uh, you can go there and say pretty much anything you think and allow the marketplace of ideas to um, determine mm-hmm. which I- which idea, which argument is better than some other argument. Uh, that seems to be um, uh, taken as a premise by plenty of, uh, of, of supporters of universities and critics of universities. Um, but what you seem to be suggesting um, is that perhaps that might not be the central virtue of university of life, uh, of university life, certainly um, free speech is important. But um, uh, but just given the example you just offered, you you seem to think that there are other um, duties that universities have that uh, perhaps I don't I don't know if I want to say um, mm-hmm. trump free speech, but should exist alongside free speech. Am I am I right about that? I think so. You know, I do. You know, I believe in the importance of civil discourse, and I and I don't, um, I don't sort of quite understand how anyone imagines that we can have civil discourse when ideas, when, for example, racist ideas are being propagated. Uh, what what kind of civil, you know, what what kind of civil discourse do we have uh, when 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 there's someone telling me? 
um, for example, that I'm inferior to them on the basis of right, my skin color. And what I find fascinating about debates concerning free speech on campuses is that it's often slanted. So it's always, well, free speech show that it's okay for you know, some white supremacist group to host a rally, hold a rally, and spread these ideas. You know, they have a right to say what they want to say. Well, when we talk about the other end of the spectrum, you know, a group of um, activists who come out and hold a rally to uh, to challenge these ideas and to oppose these ideas, then people get uncomfortable um, and and they feel like, oh, this is you know, this is somewhat um, making causing some disruption on the campus. I, I think it's important to uh, be mindful that if we're going to have a diverse college campus, we're going to have a classroom setting that's diverse. Uh, we can't allow these spaces to be spaces where ideas are propagated that ultimately um, advance a, a certain uh, perspective that devalues one group over another. And, and so I think, and so I'm not engaged, I'm not interested in engaging racist ideas. I'm not interested in engaging, um, you know, sexist ideas. I mean, I think we've, we, historically, we were clear about certain things that have happened, whether in our nation, in our world, that we simply don't tolerate. We will never, you know, stand up and say, oh, someone has some positive views about the Holocaust, let's listen. There's, there's nothing to listen, right? right? There's, there's really nothing to hear. Uh, there's, no, there's no positive views to engage other than to, to say, stop. Um, we're, we're not going to allow this to be a space where, where you um, advance these kinds of ideas when we have come to an understanding that this uh, is wrong, and wrong for a host of reasons. We could talk about all the reasons it's wrong, but we certainly don't want to fall into a trap of thinking, oh, well, let's just listen. Let's just listen to why it might not be so bad. Well, that's how we end up. We ended up here in the first place, right? And so I, I really do think it's important to set standards, um, to set boundaries. And uh, I, for one, you know, I'm happy to talk to people about a range of topics, but I, I certainly will not um, have a conversation with someone, um, a meaningful conversation certainly, with someone who starts off with the premise that, that, they, that, that they, they don't value my life hmm. or value me as an individual. And I think at that moment, civil discourse has kind of gone out the window. If, if we're coming to the table um, with, with, an, you know, with this understanding that we're uh, unequal in some way, I mean, I think we can have civil discourse when we're on the same page um, and are clear that each person certainly matters equally and um, fine, we, we could talk about a range of issues, but there's just certain things I think need to be off the table. I think if we're afraid to call out racism as, as we see it, if we're afraid to call out sexism as we see it, then we're, I mean, we, there seems to be no point to me. I mean, we've, we've fought so long and hard for certain rights in our society. Why not stand up and defend them? So I know I've, I've, I've taken up a lot of your time. I do want to just get in uh, just a quick uh, plug for your book uh, that's coming out since we've been talking about the importance of books and tenure. Um, so, so you're finishing a book right now called um, Set the World on Fire, uh, Black Nationalist Women and Global Struggles for Freedom, which will be published in the University of Pennsylvania Press's Politics and Culture in Modern America book series in 2018. So uh, just briefly, could you fill us in on the argument of your book so we know what to look forward to? Sure, and so this is the first book of its kind to uh, examine how black nationalist women engaged in national and global politics during the 20th century. And what I'm essentially arguing is that uh, the, the decline of Marcus Garvey's Universal Negro Improvement Association, which was the largest and most influential black nationalist organization of the 20th century, that in its decline, uh, what we find is that black women uh, found a crucial space in which to engage in nationalist politics in new idiosyncratic and innovative ways. Uh, and we, you know, we were just talking about taking a stand and, and challenging um, you know, racism, for example. And I think the book is a nice uh, example of how a group of women, and primarily women who had limited formal education or um, limited access at the time, certainly limited access to, to formal politics and access to the vote, how they devised 
a range of strategies to resist white supremacy on a global scale and how they attempted to uh, really build a better world uh, for themselves and, and for their children and grandchildren. So it's certainly, I think, a fascinating story that many people will uh, will be able to relate to and certainly be able to learn from, and I hope um, that uh, readers and uh, will find it useful, not just people who do African-American history or African diaspora history, but, but really anyone just interested in social movements uh, as a whole. So, uh, Keisha Blaine, thanks so much for coming on the podcast and talking with me. Thanks so much for having me. That was Keisha Blaine, a professor of history at the University of Pittsburgh. Common Ground is a podcast brought to you by the Howenstein Center at Grand Valley State University. The director of the Howenstein Center and producer of this podcast is Gleaves Whitney. Kadar Jabbar edits the podcast, and Andrew Whitney composed our theme music. The Howenstein Center is inspired by Ralph W. Howenstein's Life of Leadership and Service. Our programs address many of the most pressing issues in American life. Our annual progressive conservative conference challenges leading thinkers on the left as well as the right to explore the possibility of common ground and to redefine their respective traditions. Our annual conference on the Midwest brings together academics and journalists to discuss the cultural and political significance of the region that's often called flyover country. And of course, the Houndstown Center is itself a center for presidential studies, and it's been quite a year for the presidency. To learn more about our programs, visit HowenstainCenter.org and follow Howenstein GVSU on Facebook and Twitter. You can also follow me on Twitter at JoeHoganCGI. Thanks for listening. I'm Joseph Hogan, and this has been Common Ground.